I think we've all been there. Those times that we pushed a little too far, got in over our head, tried to do it our own way, and it all blew up in our face. And that's certainly what happened to the city of Jerusalem in Ezekiel chapter 24. They thought that they were just invincible, that nothing they did would have long-standing consequences. Because after all, they were God's city, right? But they blew it. And it was going to be a long, hard road to setting things right. So what do we do when we've blown it? You'll find out today on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a new Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. This is Luke Taylor, I'm a minister, and I'd like to solve the puzzle. (laughs) You might have heard that phrase before, that's a familiar phrase from the game show Wheel of Fortune. And I think we've all seen the wheel, right? You know, I don't have to tell you what it's all about. Uh, The nighttime edition of Will of Fortune has been on the air about as long as I have been on this earth, okay? So it's been around for quite a while. But something is about to happen on Will of Fortune that has never happened before. Coming up in October, Vanna White is going to be absent for a week. And that has not actually happened in over 30 years of the nighttime Will of Fortune show. Vanna White is always there when a new episode of Will of Fortune is filmed, but not next month. The reason being that Vanna White actually got COVID recently, and she had to miss a week of filming. And so the episodes that she had to miss out on, those are going to be shown next month. Now, she has recorded thousands of episodes. She has walked literally hundreds of miles back and forth across that stage, and she has never missed an episode ever since she started until now. So this is something that is truly unprecedented. Before this episode, if somebody has, had suggested the idea that Vanna White was not going to be there for a week, we could have protested. Hey, of course she's going to be there. She's always been there before. She's never missed an episode before. Why would she start now? And in the same way, the inhabitants of Jerusalem may have said that there is no way that their city would be destroyed. After all, it was God's city. He had always taken care of it before. God had never let anybody wipe out Jerusalem in the past. So why would he start now? And yet, the day has come. What was once unprecedented and unthinkable is becoming reality. The nation is not indestructible. The city is not invulnerable. It had been sustained ever since day one by God's hand. And God's hand was about to be lifted off of it. We are in part 40 of our series on the book of Ezekiel. We're also at the turning point of the book because here's a spoiler alert. This is the chapter where Jerusalem is going to fall. For at least 20 chapters, Ezekiel has been prophesying against Jerusalem. After this chapter, Ezekiel won't be done, but there is not going to be a Jerusalem to prophesy against anymore. He's going to have to turn his attention to other matters very soon. But we'll get there when we get there. For now, grab your Bible, turn to Ezekiel 24, and we'll see what God's Word says for us today.
Ezekiel 24 verses 1 and 2. In the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, write down the name of this day, this very day. The king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. Note the specificity of this date. This is about probably January 15th of 587 BC. Ezekiel is not prophesying a warning. What he's prophesying is actually the news. It's current events. He's in a a city called Tel Aviv. He's not in Jerusalem. He's been prophesying against the city of Jerusalem from many, many miles away for the past few years. His messages, we get the indication that they had been relayed to the inhabitants of Jerusalem in some way, but they're not going to get this message in time because right now, as Ezekiel is speaking these words, Babylon's armies, they are rolling up on Jerusalem to invade and conquer it. And this is the only prophecy in the whole book of Ezekiel that dates itself based on the year of the king. That was a typical format that the prophets generally used, but Ezekiel has always been dating things based on when they went into exile. Uh, And so that makes this prophecy a little different for him. He's doing it based on the king. And from what I can tell, this is the literal day that Babylon arrived at Jerusalem. We know from past prophecies that they surround the city, I think it said for 500 days. And so it takes about a year and a half of starving the people out from this point, getting them all weak. And then Babylon is finally going to charge in and take the city. But this day marks the beginning of Jerusalem's sufferings because it's going to be under a siege for the next year and a half. And so now Ezekiel kind of uses a parable here, a prophetic picture of a pot. He says in verse three, and utter a parable to the rebellious house and say to them, thus says the Lord God, set on the pot, set it on, pour in water also. Put in it the pieces of meat, all the good pieces, the thigh and the shoulder. Fill it with choice bones. Take the choicest one of the flock, pile the logs under it, boil it well, seethe also its bones in it. And so in this parable, there's an analogy that's being made, and it's being made between Jerusalem and a pot. The pot is being filled with water, a fire is being set, and soon this is going to boil. And it says all the choice meat are being thrown into the pot to cook. And so in this analogy, to be the choice meat, this would not be a good thing. You know, this is a bad thing. The, the meat is the citizenry of Jerusalem and the people are in hot water and God is boiling mad. This really brings to mind a passage that's early on in the book of Jeremiah. If you want to cross reference for this, it says in Je- uh, chapter one, verse 13, Jeremiah writes, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, out of the north, disaster will be let loose, shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come and everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against all its walls all around and against all the cities of Judah. And I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil and forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worship the works of their own hands. And so in Jeremiah's vision, there is again a pot, but this time God is saying that this pot is the fury of Babylon. It's going to descend from the north upon Israel and surround Jerusalem. And so all these prophecies are coming to pass. But let's get back to Ezekiel, verse 6 of chapter 24. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, woe to the bloody city, to the pot whose corrosion is in it, and whose corrosion has not gone out of it. Take out of it piece after piece without making any choice. For the blood she has shed is in her midst, 
She put it on the bare rock. She did not pour it out on the ground to cover it with dust. To rouse my wrath, to take vengeance, I have set on the bare rock the blood she has shed, that it may not be covered. And so, it, again, this, this metaphor here of the pot, he's pulling the meat out of the pot, flinging it on the ground. I don't know if Ezekiel actually did these things that he's speaking about, or if he's just like describing this to the people. But this is what Ezekiel is talking about. He's prepared a pot. He's put the choice meat in it. He has set it to boil. Okay. And so the meat, uh, you know, we're going to imagine this meat feels pretty good about itself. It's saying, hey, I'm the, I'm the prime rib right here. You know, I'm the choice meat. And so it's just like those inhabitants of Jerusalem. They think that they're the greatest Israelites because God has left them with the city of Jerusalem. They think they're, you know, we're the only ones left. We must be God's favorites. He's taken an extra good care of us. Those other Jews got carried away. Ezekiel got carried away to Tel Aviv. We must be the best of the best Jews that we get to stay here in our, in our home city. So they are feeling pretty good about themselves being the choice meat. But then the, the cook starts yanking these choice, choice meats out of that water and throwing them off into the dirt and into the rocks to say, hey, you're not special. <laughs> We're going to fling you out of the pot. You're being flung out for your bloody crimes. I, I won't go into all the crimes here because we've spent most of our recent episodes talking about all the crimes of Jerusalem and, and Israel. And so uh, Ezekiel has been detailing all these things throughout the book. But one of the things that comes up the most is God is most offended by the bloodshed within the city and how they justify this bloodshed to themselves. And so God says, you're being thrown out for all of your bloody crimes. That's what he means by that. Uh, verse nine, therefore, thus says the Lord God, woe to the bloody city. I also will make the pile great. Heap on the logs, kindle the fire, boil the meat well, mix in the spices and let the bones be burned up. Then set it empty upon the coals, that it may become hot, and its copper may burn, that its uncleanness may be melted in it, its corrosion consumed. So God says, you know, here, after you flung the meat out onto the ground, now make the fire bigger, throw on some more logs, throw on some more sticks, toss the meat right into the fire. You know, so we just see this really kind of, uh, I don't know, gruesome picture being painted here of what's going to happen to this meat. It's not going to be cooked. It's not the choice meat. It's going to be thrown in the dirt. And it's going to be thrown right back into the flames. Hebrews warns us that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Now, God is loving. God is kind. But also, Psalm says that God is angry with the wicked every day. Romans says that, you know, at one time, we were all enemies of God because of our sinfulness. And so, um, thankfully, God is he's merciful with us. And God wants us to be merciful. But eventually people, you know, they can push too far. And when that happens, God has to bring down his fist of judgment. And so this right here, this is Israel's day of reckoning. Um, God says, toss that meat right into the fire. And, and I think, I, you know, I kind of see a reference to hell right there too. This is the Old Testament Hebrews conception of hell. It's the burning place. Um, you see it in Isaiah 33, 30. For a burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king it is made ready. It's pyre made deep and wide with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. And so what Isaiah is describing right here, this burning place, he's describing hell. The word for burning place right here is only used in, in the Hebrew. It's only used in one other place in scripture. And that is right here in Ezekiel 24. And here it's translated as the great pile that's under the pot, the pile of sticks for the fire. It's the burning place. And that's where these remaining Israelites are going. 
And so this is a, a very graphic picture here of the destiny of these people who have have blown it. <laughs> They've rejected God for so long. And now the, you know, judgment is here. It's waiting at the gates and they're not going to get out of this one. Not only have they polluted themselves, but they polluted their whole city, the pot. And so God says in these verses, we're even going to throw the pot away. That's what's going to happen to Jerusalem. Um, the best cross-reference for this is probably 2 Kings 25. It says, in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. You know, this siege goes on for 500 days. People can't get food, can't get water. They're, they're eating each other. I mean, this is what's coming to Jerusalem are some really, really bad times ahead. It's not just going to be as simple as Babylon comes in and slaughters them. I mean, they're going to suffer for over a year before they even get to that point. Bad stuff coming for them. And it goes on, if I skip down a few verses there in 2 Kings 25, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. So this is the fate right here of Jerusalem. These are, you know, these are some solemn verses that we read here in 2 Kings 25. Sounds kind of like the end of the story. It's not the end of Israel's story. Sure sounds like it for most countries. This was, this would be the end of the story. Oh, you get wiped out by another invading army. You're all dead. You get assimilated into a new culture if you do survive. But your people, your place in history, now it's, <laughs> that's what it's relegated to. You are in history. Now, God restored Jerusalem, brought back Israel. Um, and we'll talk about that more as Ezekiel goes on. But I mean, for most countries, this is, this is some dark, heavy stuff. This would be the end of the story for them. God says, to go back to the pot metaphor, I'm just taking this pot, I'm throwing the pot itself into the fire. Meaning the city itself, I'm just wiping the slate clean. We're just getting rid of the, the word that it kept using there. It's a word that's only used here in the whole Old Testament. It's this word for corrosion or rust. I think it shows up like three times in these verses. The only place in the Bible this word shows up. And it, it's, I guess that's the word of the day for this week, if we're, if we're still keeping track of those. Um, this, it's rusty. You got a rusty pot. It's not good for holding anything anymore. We're not just going to throw out the meat. We're going to throw out the whole pot because it's become so corroded, it's worthless. And so God is wiping the slate clean, even getting rid of Jerusalem itself. And so um, if you want to know, if you were reading, you know, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, reading through the history books of the Old Testament, if you want to know right where we are, if you read up to 2 Kings chapter 24, everything that happens so far in Ezekiel happens between chapter 24 and 2 Kings 25. All of Ezekiel's prophecies are looking back at what's happened up to chapter 24 of 2 Kings, warning people of what's coming in 2 Kings 25. Here now, in Ezekiel 24, it's finally happening. Okay, so the, as I said, the slate is being wiped clean. Let's read the last of our verses for today. She has, verse 12, she has wearied herself with toil. Its abundant corrosion does not go out of it into the fire with its corrosion on account of your unclean lewdness, because I would have cleansed you and you were not cleansed from your uncleanness. 
you shall not be cleansed any more till I have satisfied my fury upon you. And so he's saying here, you know, this pot is so rusty from its corrosion, you can't scrub it clean, okay? No amount of Ajax or Comet is going to clean this pot. It has become too corrupted. God, God says, I can't clean it. I'm throwing it out. It's going to be burned in the fire. The entire city, gone. Verse 14. I am the Lord. I have spoken. It shall come to pass. I will do it. I will not go back. I will not spare. I will not relent. According to your ways and your deeds, you will be judged, declares the Lord God. I imagine these people as they're, you know, first of 500 days that they're going to be under siege. They see the army surrounding them. I bet you they got to praying. <laughs> I bet you they got to repenting, but it was too late. God says, I will not go back. I will not spare. I will not relent. God says, this is a done deal now. You've blown it and I'm going to destroy you. Now let's remember, this was not God's plan A. Plan A was for them to obey him, but they didn't follow plan A. And for years and years, God had given them opportunity after opportunity to fix things, to get back on the right path, okay? To get back onto plan A, but they wouldn't do it. They rejected every chance to do right. And so here they are, they've blown it. And they're going to have to go with a different plan. Have you ever blown it before? Have you ever done something your own way? You decided, I just want to push through. I'm going to be hard-headed about this. I'm going to be uh, stubborn. And I want to do it my way and pursued it, you know, your own way so relentlessly. And you reject any opportunity to course correct. And then the day finally came when things blew up in your face. I mean, I've been there. I think a lot of people have been there. Uh, a lot of us find ourselves coming to the end of ourselves, right? We get ourselves into a mess and we're not sure how to get out of it. And then we finally cry out to God for help. We come to realize God was trying to help us all along and we just weren't listening. So um, I have some good news for you today. You know, if you're not dead, you're not done. You're here for a reason. If you're still breathing air, God has got a purpose for you and for your life. And so I want to talk about that as we close down in a few moments. I want to talk about what to do whenever we blow it. We'll close down in a few minutes with a quick recap and some personal application of this chapter. If you appreciate today's Bible study, you could show your appreciation by, um, one, if you could just say a prayer. I'd appreciate that. Say a prayer that people will find it. Um, if you know someone who might like it, you can share it out. Or just leave a like or a positive review. You know, any of those things, that helps it to rise in the rankings. But most of all, if you just say a prayer, I would be grateful for that too. And if you have a question on anything from this chapter... You can leave a comment or shoot me an email, crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. Lately, I've had way more comments than I even am able to respond to on the podcast. The last two episodes have just been mailbag episodes, essentially. Um, but anyway, I've tried to respond personally when I can't do it on the on the program here. Um, and I'll try to, I think going forward, I'll still try to respond to at least one and that's what I want to do today. In fact, I'm going to share one here that's actually a bit on the negative side, <laughs> a negative piece of feedback. Um, not and not because not I want to focus on negatives, but I just feel like this comment, it was pretty representative of um, what a common response that you get whenever you talk about the rapture. You know, I've been talking about the rapture for the past few programs. And um, there was a guy named Francis who responded. So again, I don't usually focus on the negative responses, 
Francis has a really impressive vocabulary. <laughs> so I, th- I thought he was he was worth responding to here. And then I think I'll use this to kind of talk about how how I respond to people who do have comments like this. So he says, uh, the, in, as you all know, or if you don't know, but I'm a pre-tribulation rapture person, pre-millennial dispensationalist theology. That's, you know, I'm a I'm a Pentecostal preacher. So that's that's where I come from on on how I look at the end times. And so here's how Francis responded on a recent episode. He says, the creedal belief in the rapture is like an anesthetic drug. It masks the pain of facing the tribulation of the household of God throughout the world and through church history. Christians suffer persecution and cruelty unto death. And good Christians bravely face that opportunity of faith. And they deeply love those who are being so challenged. Rapturists, however, feel that they alone will escape the suffering. So I'm going to stop there. It goes on for a while. But I kind of think you get the picture there um, that people who believe in the rapture, they are they're afraid they're not being brave about facing persecution and cruelty. And they're 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 too afraid to die. So they just kind of believe like a drug in this theory of the rapture that they're going to get out of suffering. So that's that's what he says. All right. And you hear this kind of comment a lot from people when you go online and whenever you talk about the rapture. So, Francis, there's two things I would like to say in response to this. Um, I think, number one, this makes the mistake that Christians who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, that they're just doing it as like a mental, um, to make it easier, I guess, or to make it, to try to avoid the reality of suffering in this world. Okay. And, and that is just not true. Um, what people who believe in the rapture think, what they believe is that they're going to escape God's wrath of the tribulation. But persecution and suffering, those are not part of God's wrath. They're they're just part of living in this world. And I think every Christian acknowledges that persecution and suffering, they are to be an expected part of the Christian experience. What we believe that we're not meant to endure is the wrath of God. And that wrath of God is going to be poured out on the world in the tribulation, the judgments of the tribulation, like those starting in Revelation 6. They are called wrath. But 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So yes, Christians are going to have to deal with tribulation, okay? Because tribulation can have multiple types of meanings. Tribulation can mean going through sufferings of various kinds. So yes, Christians will experience a variety of tribulations. But there's also something spoken of that's right before the end of the world that's called the Great Tribulation. And I do believe Christians are going to be spared the Great Tribulation. Now, do I have a clear verse in the Bible I can point to that says Christians are going to be raptured before the Great Tribulation? Well, no, I don't have that verse, okay? But there's verses that clearly state there is a rapture, and that's why we just kind of look at the whole timeline of events and try to figure out where is the most logical place that you would put it. And so to me and and to the Christians who study this the most, it makes the most sense to us to put the rapture before the great tribulation, before God's wrath is poured out on the world. Okay. And if, if you think you have a better place to put it, then I'm all ears, you know, let me know, let me know why. But if you, you know, as, as you're writing this stuff to me, if you don't even know the difference in wrath and suffering and persecution, if you, and, and tribulation, and if you just equate all of those things. I don't think you've really done your homework, <laughs> quite frankly. I don't, I would not consider you a very good 
authority on the end times if you think that God's wrath is the same as just general suffering or general persecution that Christians face. Those are different things. And so if you haven't even sorted those things out, I'm probably not going to care about your opinion very much. You know, when people say stuff like, oh, rapturists, they just believe they can escape suffering. Well, when I hear someone saying that, I just don't think that sounds like a very informed opinion. We believe we're going to escape the suffering of the tribulation, but we never said that we would experience no suffering in this world, period. You know, and so if you, in fact, if, if you've been listening to my podcast the past few months, you know that I think the rapture is probably a few more years away. And so I've specifically said we need to be prepared to face some suffering and persecution before the rapture happens. I'm not an escapist about suffering. I'm what I'm an escapist about is escaping God's wrath. So that'd be the first thing I would say when I get a response like this. The second thing I'll say, and I want to say this for anybody out there who would, if you want to defend a pre-tribulation rapture, here's how you can stay focused, stay on point and not get off into having the wrong, like having arguments that are just a waste of time. Okay. You can disregard any argument that is trying to psychoanalyze you rather than simply dealing with what the Bible says. Okay, let me read again what, what Francis tells me. He says, The creedal belief in the rapture is like an anesthetic drug. It masks the pain of facing the tribulation of the household of God throughout the world and through church history. Okay, and, and, and something else he said later, I didn't read this before. He said, It is a shallow idea, a shabby scripture cherry-picked doctrine without merit of historical roots, promoted by weakened minds and the petty arrogance that our latest generation won the eschatological lottery. Okay, so that that was again, that was what Francis was saying. Now, this is the part that where if you are someone who makes a scriptural argument in favor of the rapture, like I've done several times on this program. Okay, here's how you stay on track with that and not get pulled off uh, focus and get someone trying to argue with you about something that doesn't even matter. Okay, when you make a scriptural based argument about the rapture and people respond to you by attacking your motives instead of responding based on scripture. When that happens, ignore those people. Okay? Just ignore them. Their 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 attacks on you mean nothing. They're, they're just a, it's called ad hominem. They're just attacking the man. They're not even attacking the argument. They're just making personal attacks, okay? You can ignore those people. I'm only responding to Francis here cuz I think this is representative of a lot of the responses that you get whenever you talk about the rapture. They call you a coward, they think you're just not brave enough to go through the Great Tribulation. They call you a weak mind, okay? <laughs> they call you arrogant or prideful. I'm just sitting here, I'm like, I'm just trying to talk about what the Bible says. <laughs> you know, why are you trying to, to psychoanalyze me, okay? I, I don't care if you think I'm a coward. I don't care if you think I'm prideful. You're some stranger on the internet. You don't even know me. So how, how could you possibly know my motivations? You know, I don't know you. I don't. Think about what your inner motivations are. I don't even care what, you know, I don't care what people think when they're just going to come at you with personal attacks and not even a single Bible verse to talk about what the Bible says. So I'm just using this as kind of an example for the people out there who want to defend a pre-tribulation rapture, okay? When the haters show up and they think that they can read your mind, you can just ignore them, okay? Francis, I'll have the scriptural argument with you any day of the week, okay? But if you expect me just to sit here and defend my emotions and defend my my feelings to you, 
That just sounds like a boring conversation to me. I'm not interested in that. And and Francis, I would much rather you spend that time, you know, writing a book or something, because I think you got a really good grasp on the English language. <laughs> so use that for something good. Just don't write about eschatology. All right. OK, let's let's return to today's lesson um, that, I'm just, that I'm just trying to stop myself there at one mailbag and I'll do another one next week until I, I guess until I run out. But um, I'll, I'll keep trying to work through those. Let's let's return to Israel as we close out today's lesson. So three things that I want you to know about blowing it, because that is what Israel has done. They've blown it. I'm not necessarily always going to force an application into every single lesson, but 1 Corinthians 10, it says that the things in the Old Testament, they were written so that we could learn from them. Okay. And if there's one thing that we could learn from in the Old Testament, it would probably have to be the destruction of Jerusalem, because this is what Israel had done to cause God to take away their city. So they blew it. And I want to talk about that today. Okay. One, I want to talk about how to avoid blowing it. Two, what to do when you've blown it. And then three, the biggest way to blow it. All right. So I'm going to start with how to avoid blowing it because that's where we want to be. Okay. We want to avoid blowing it. Right. <laughs> I'll keep these short. Israel blew it because their sins had finally caught up with them. They teased God's wrath for years and years. They rejected opportunities to repent, rejected opportunities to course correct. You know, course correct is a really good term here. Course correcting, that means, you know, you've gotten you've gotten away from God's word, okay? You've gotten away from God's ways. You're kind of drifting off in the wrong direction. When it starts happening, it's so subtle. It's so subtle that you barely even notice. But if you don't course correct early on, you know, eventually you start drifting, you get miles off course. You start arriving at a destination that was way off base from where what you intended, right? So how do we avoid that drift? Well, what you got to do is have regular self-evaluations to make sure that you're on the right path, okay? Do weekly or even monthly checkups. Just ask yourself, am I, am I still reading my Bible every day? Am I still praying every day? Am I still trying to grow myself spiritually? You know, not just coasting, not just on autopilot, not just doing the minimum, okay? Not letting Jesus become something I just do on Sunday and kind of just ignore him the rest of the week. You know, you just double check yourself on this stuff. Do a self-checkup, okay? If you're listening to a Bible study podcast like this, I'd say that's a pretty good sign right there, okay? But, but listen, don't just listen to these things. Do these things. Do regular self-checkups, all right? If you find yourself starting to go adrift, try to fix it early on. And it's not such a big deal. Okay. A day of reckoning. <laughs> that's what I kind of call what's happening here with Jerusalem. Um, listen, this didn't just spring up on them overnight. Okay. Blowing it doesn't happen all at once. Right. It, the, the, the day of reckoning happens all at once, but it, it has to be something that builds over time. Like, a, like an affair, right? Someone doesn't just have an affair out of the blue. It starts with, you know, flirtatious contact. And then conversations happen that shouldn't be happening. And then a meetup happens that shouldn't happen. You know, stuff like that. That's what, and then they blow it. Or uh, embezzlement, right? It doesn't start with some big, you know, multi-million dollar scheme all at once. It starts with stealing a little bit, seeing what you can get away with. And if you can get away with that, you steal a little bit more and a little bit more. And, you know, eventually you blow it. Full-blown apostasy, right? Which that's what Israel had really gotten into here. It didn't just happen all at once. 
Okay, this had happened. This had been building for hundreds of years. All right, um, you can't really just if you're just a good, strong Christian, you're not going to get argued into apostasy just with one conversation. It's something that builds over time. You know, you start accepting false ideas. You let those false ideas take root in your mind. You keep accepting a few more and a few more. And then eventually you get to a point where you just deny the faith entirely. It reminds me of that song with, uh, it's Casting Crowns, I think. It's called Slow Fade. They play it in that movie Fireproof. And um, the words are like, it's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white turns to gray. Thoughts invade. Choices are made. A price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. Those are the words of that song. It's a slow fade until eventually you blow it. And you don't even realize it because it didn't happen all at once. Well, Israel's apostasy that had brought about God's judgment, it didn't happen overnight. God isn't that short-tempered that that's just all it's because they had a bad week, so he's destroying the city. It's not like that. He gave them years and years and chance after chance to repent. He gave them countless warnings, sent them so many prophets. But they just, what they do? They slipped in another God here and another pagan practice there. And they thought they could get away with it because, you know, God didn't bring the hammer down after the first false God. He didn't bring the hammer down when they fought, brought the first idol into the temple. He, God was patient. They, they mistook his mercy for apathy. They thought God just didn't care. Okay, so we got to be careful with that in our lives. If you're listening to me right now, don't play with sin. Okay, you, you know that old phrase, don't play with fire? Playing with sin is like playing with fire. So take God seriously, all right? Do, do regular self-evaluations. That is how you avoid blowing it. Okay, I, I, I said I'd do these short. I spent too much time on that first one. <laughs> Number two, what to do whenever you've blown it. Let's talk about that. God is so good, guys. Okay, we, some of us, guess what? We do screw it up. We do blow it. But the good news is God will forgive. God will restore. And it doesn't always mean that you get everything back that you had before. Sometimes there's consequences to our actions. But what God will do is restore your relationship with him. He will do it. Now, it can be a hard road. I'm not saying it's easy. It's better than just staying in your mess. But, you know, cry out to God for help. Repent. Humble yourself. All that. Do all that. It still might be a hard road. But God will restore your relationship when you come back to him and acknowledge what you've done wrong, I think of King David. I know I'm going to drag this podcast out, but I just think of King David, that horrible, horrible sin with Bathsheba and Uriah and all that stuff. We don't even have to get into it all, but if you know it, you know it. I mean, it was a terrible thing that he did, but as soon as he was called out on it, it's mind-blowing how merciful God was with him. He didn't kill him. He didn't make him not be king anymore. God forgave him. That's just, it's mind-blowing. God will forgive you. If you've blown it, God will forgive you. But you got to be ready to walk a hard road. You know, then David had a really hard road to walk. And he had lots of family problems. He had lots of consequences. All the stuff that happens, he had a pretty good kingship up until the Bathsheba incident. And then all of these family problems started happening after the Bathsheba thing. There's consequences to our actions, even whenever we do get restored to God. So you got to deal with those. It's a hard road. All right. Israel. They're going to be out of their land for 70 years. The people are going to have to humble themselves. They're going to have to deal with some tough consequences here. 
They're going to have to own their mistakes. They're, they can't make excuses anymore. They can't pass the blame. They've got a tough road ahead. So listen, guys, when you blow it in life, you might have a tough road in front of you. What you got to do is find a trusted spiritual advisor and let them lead you back into the light. You got to go apologize to whoever you need to apologize to. You need to accept the consequences of your actions. You need to come up with a plan so that you never blow it like that again. You got to submit to the process. Okay. When God's refining fire, it's not pleasant. <laughs> it's, it's a fire. It's a furnace. It, it's meant to melt you down so you can be reshaped, so you can be molded into who you need to be. I, I just feel like someone needs to hear this today. If you are resisting what it's going to take to pick up the pieces after you've blown it, what you got to do is submit to the process and you will be glad that you did. Okay. Despite what you think, running away is not going to make it better in the long run. The restoration process, it might be grueling, but it's the only way forward if you actually want to move forward and put all this stuff behind you. Okay. So, on what to do when you blow it, humble yourself, repent, submit to the process, and move forward. Okay. Last thing today the biggest way to blow it. The biggest way to blow it is by losing your soul for forever. I just want to speak to anybody out there who has not given their life over to Christ yet. If that's you today, hey, listen, I am so glad that you tuned in, that you're listening today. I'm glad you're here. I don't know what it was. I don't know what it was that drew you to pull up an episode of a Bible study podcast, but I, I mean, I do know what it is. I believe it was the Holy Spirit. And what I want to do right now is share something with you that God is showing us from this story about Jerusalem. God had been trying to get this city's attention for years. And they, they didn't think that they needed a relationship with God. They thought, hey, we're Jews. We're in God's holy city. We're going to be fine. But the thing is, they weren't fine. They thought it didn't matter whether they had a relationship with God because of who their family was, because of their heritage, because of basically because of where they lived. They thought that they were good people. They just thought, oh, well, we're better than most people in the world. Well, and in some ways that was true, but, you know, everyone kind of thinks that they're better than most everyone else around them. They're like, well, hey, I might not be perfect, but I'm, I'm better than most people. And they think that that means that they're good enough to be good with God. But that is not how it works. You've got to know God personally. You don't have a relationship with God just because your grandma did, just because your parents even did. Or you don't have a relationship with God because you used to go to church. No, what you got to do is know God personally. Now, God had been sending things into Jerusalem's path for years and years. He'd been trying to get their attention, trying to get them to repent, but they just weren't having it. They weren't going to listen to it. They never repented. They never got right with God. And then one day, it was too late. Babylon's armies rolled in. And like I said, I bet they started praying then, but it was too late. They were wiped out. Destruction came upon them. If you're listening today, if you don't have a relationship with God, you know, maybe that's your story. Maybe God's been trying to get your attention and you haven't listened. But if you're not dead, you're not done. Okay. If you're still sucking air right now, there's still hope for you. You still have time to set your eternity in stone and go to heaven whenever you leave this earth. So here's what God wants you to know. He came to this earth 2,000 years ago. He came in the person of Jesus Christ. He was God in human flesh. And we killed him. But because he was God, 
He let us do that. He submitted to the process. He didn't die for his own sins. You know, he didn't have any sins to die for. He was perfect. He was God. He didn't die for his own sins. He died for your sins. He died, he died for my sins. He died so that we could go to heaven. And for you to go to heaven, you have to believe that that's true and accept God's sacrifice on the cross for your sins. And so I encourage you to get a Bible and go look at the story of the cross. It's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you go to any of those books, you will find the cross. You will read about what Jesus did. And then three days after that, after he paid that price on the cross, that you and I is, is really who deserved it, Jesus rose from the dead. God re-entered that body, and he showed that he is stronger than death. He left this earth with a promise that someday he's coming back. So here's how you can keep from blowing it. What you got to do is give your life over to Jesus. Confess him as Lord and accept his sacrifice for your sins. You need to do that. And you need to do that ASAP because one of two things is going to happen. Okay. One, you could die. And then whenever you die, it's too late. Nothing can be done for you after that. Like God is patient. He does all these things to try to get our attention, but eventually time runs out. So number one, you could die. Decide soon before that happens. The other thing that could happen, number two, is that you could miss the rapture. And I know I've said some things about the rapture lately on the podcast that make it sound like it could be a, far, you know, a ways off, but still I acknowledge it could happen at any moment. Okay. At some point, God's going to tell Jesus to come get us. A trumpet's going to be blown. Jesus will return in the air. He will call the saints up and you have to be ready to go or you're going to be left behind for seven years of hell on earth. And you probably won't even survive the whole seven years. There's going to be horrible plagues. The planet's going to get wrecked. Like if you thought 2020 or 2021, if you thought those were bad with, with the pandemic and lockdowns and Chinese spy balloons and inflation and all that stuff, that is nothing compared to what's coming to this planet in the tribulation. So the rapture is going to be the last chance. And if you're still here after the rapture, you've blown it. So don't think that just because a rapture hasn't happened ever before, that it's not going to happen now. Okay, because look at where that kind of thinking got Israel. Just because something hasn't happened before, it doesn't mean it's not going to happen in the future. So don't test God's patience. Make a decision. Get right with God today because your eternity could hang in the balance. And that's not something that you want to play with. Nothing is more valuable than your soul. Vanna White makes $3 million a year. $3 million a year. That's, that's pretty good living for someone who walks back and forth on a stage and taps on letters on a TV show, right? But a hundred years from now, none of that money is going to matter. Nobody might even know who Vanna White or Pat Sajak even is. The only thing that's going to matter is your eternity and where you spend it. Think about that. Thanks for listening to the Cross References Podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you that Vanna White is coming back, but so is Jesus. The earth is going to have a day of reckoning. There will be a seven-year tribulation. It starts with the trumpet. Don't blow it. Oh, 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 oh,